welcome to Love Curvy Yoga, the podcast that's all about the intersection between yoga and body acceptance. Today, my guest is Melanie Klein, who I love so much. I'm so excited for y'all to meet her. Melanie is totally my soul sister. She's the co-editor of our book, Yoga and Body Image, 25 Personal Stories About Beauty, Bravery, and Loving Your Body. Melanie and I met in 2010 because we were both one of just a couple people writing about yoga and body image online. And at that time, that's when things were really growing in the yoga blogosphere. And so we were able to connect um, even across the country and start talking. And so that was really the genesis of what later became the book. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in our conversation. But for now, welcome, Melanie. Thanks for having me, Anna. Glad to be here. So I wanted to start off asking you about what your relationship with your body was like when you were a younger person. Um, Well, you know, when I was very young, and I'm going to say probably before the age of probably eight years old, I recall being very physical and being very much in my body, that my relationship to my body was one of doing and being and, you know, being very, an active participant in the world and my surroundings. And that was a, a very enjoyable experience for me. Um, I felt very confident and capable in my body. There wasn't really a lot of thought about my body as ornament at that time, which is actually really similar to what contributor Alanis Morissette had talked about in uh, in her chapter of the mm. book. Um, it's really, it's about, you know, being engaged and, and being completely connected. So that's what I recall. I certainly remember being aware, of course, at that age of standards of beauty, what those normative expectations were, but they didn't feel oppressive. They didn't feel invasive in, in any way. There was just an awareness that, you know, there was a certain standard measure of what was considered attractive. Um, and it didn't really have more of an impact than that. When I moved from Germany, where I was living at the time with my family, when I moved to the United States, uh, things had changed. Um, my mother then became pregnant with my sister. Um, I had moved to another country. Uh, certainly the um, eating habits were different in the United States. I had moved from a country in which the largest meal was eaten during the day, and then you had supper in the evening, which was usually maybe you know some cheese and bread, tea, light things. So there's a difference just in, in the way that um, we ate and how we ate and also what we ate. I remember I had never seen pre-sliced bread in a bag before. That was really new to me. Um, you know, you got bread from the baker and you got uh, meat from the butcher. And, uh, you know, there was a, it was kind of like, you know, prior to the whole real food movement or whole food movement in this country. And even the slow food movement that was already happening. That was, that was essentially just how life was, um, you know, in Europe in the 1970s. So there were a lot of changes there. I had gained uh, a few pounds, I think, as a result of the change of the kind of food that I was eating, the, the pattern in which we're eating, but also I can only imagine that there was a certain level of stress about moving to another country, not speaking the language, and then changes in my family dynamic. And so um, as a result, uh, there was weight gain. And definitely in retrospect, um, it was very minor, (laughs) but it seemed to be a big deal to my family Mm -hmm. and um, to my mother specifically and my grandmother. And so um, there were comments made, and I know that their intentions were good because this was you know, at, at this point, um, 
a lot of people were very thin. You know, those changes in our own diets as a, as a nation had not begun. People were more active. We weren't as sedentary at the time. And so there was a real focus. There was a different norm at that time. And so I didn't fit that norm. And uh, they wanted me to fit that norm because I think they understood that there would be consequences if I didn't. And so their intentions, I think, were very pure and honorable, and they were very much in alignment with the time. But it certainly gave me the sense that there was something wrong and something that needed to be fixed. Um, it was uncomfortable to have so much attention on my body. And then there were measures taken to how I could lose weight. And so dieting, even though I had seen my the women in my family dieting, now dieting was something that was introduced to me. So here I was eight or nine years old and, and being put on diets. And as a result, I developed a very, very um, you know, dysfunctional relationship with food and a huge disconnect happened between me and my body. And it became not about what I could do or be, but what I looked like and then how could I sort of use my intellect and my will to overpower my body and, and have it conform to the expectations. So uh, that's set in motion, you know, decades worth of dysfunctional behaviors. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting how you said at the end about how you can kind of use your will to bend your body to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I got that language actually, um, you know, from an anthology about uh, eating disorders in, in Western culture about, you know, how it connects to the notion of the mind-body split. Um, and uh, Susan Bordeaux wrote about that in her anthology, Unbearable Weight, Feminism, Western Culture, and the Body. And I read that in graduate school. And that's where I had gotten that language is really understanding how that mind-body split in Western culture um, places an emphasis on the intellect, which is also deemed masculine, mm -hmm. and how we should be able to, you know, essentially have our body conform to those expectations as opposed to seeing them in relationship. Um, and so it wasn't until I, you know, began to really be introduced to massage therapy and yoga and sort of all of these sort of holistic methodologies where I really began to understand that that was a problem. <laughs> I never yeah. realized that that was a problem. It's the, I mean, that was what I saw all around me. Right. Um, and so it's, to me, it seemed like, well, of course I'm going to, to, you know, push my body to certain boundaries beyond its boundaries because I want to, and I expect it to, to, you know, to meet my expectations. Mm -hmm. I am excited to hear about this. What made you a feminist? Well, I, um, I've already sort of revealed my dysfunctional relationship with my body starting mm -hmm. at a very early age. So there was, you know, struggling with that in private, definitely feeling like I was the only one, you know, that this was an individual internal struggle. Uh, there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of guilt uh, around that, um, dealing with that, but yet simultaneously having pretty incredible female role models in my, in my life, um, despite the fact that, you know, I mentioned my mother and my grandmother were in, in large part behind, um, you know, this body focus. They were, they're really unconventional female figures, especially given at the time. And so um, I also had a lot of strong women in my life um, and those role models were very important. And uh, as I had experiences of dealing with, you know, disordered eating and, you know, getting involved in really punishing exercises and other things, um, cutting as well, um, also getting involved in mentally and physically abusive relationships with men. Um, by the time I got to college and took a women's studies class, it was actually sociology of women, it really resonated with me because I also had 
you know, those, those strong female role models. And so that was very appealing, that sort of powerful element, that reclaiming element. And simultaneously, it really spoke to the systematic nature of my own struggles, which I came to discover were not personal and individual struggles. They're very much um, struggles that, you know, scores of women experience Mm -hmm. in the culture. And so that was a, uh, that was a liberating moment for me to feel very much freed from the personal guilt and shame and moving into a place of empowerment. Yeah, I feel like that's huge. You and I have had that similar experience. I think that's the work of feminism or any sort of liberatory work, which is the problem isn't you, the problem is the structure. Yes, and I know you've mentioned that in interviews and you obviously wrote that in your own chapter about, well, maybe there's not something, you know, wrong with my body, maybe, you know, the practice needs to change and for me it was very similar and hopefully I paraphrased that correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then for me, it was uh, maybe there's not something wrong with my body. Maybe there's something wrong with the images uh, that are flooding the culture. And so, um, you know, along with the sort of feminist consciousness and the sociological imagination that was created, I also um, had a very strong media literacy background that began from the very, very beginning of my academic career. And so deconstructing media images and understanding how these media images have a cumulative effect on the cultural consciousness and on individuals um, allowed me to really separate my own self-identity from, right, those images and Mm. and understand that those images are problematic in and of themselves. Yeah, because you can see the ways that they're being used to manipulate people to sort of think or be a certain way. Yeah, and to reap tremendous profits off of that as well. Right. To keep people constantly in need of something, you know, that there's always something that's identified as wrong or inadequate or in need of fixing, and that solutions that are then provided by the, you know, the various services, commodities that we're able to purchase. Right. So that gave me a really, you know, a huge structural lens, which has served me incredibly well, not only in my work, but in my own life, because yeah. obviously we're still exposed to them. There's no, there's no right. way to escape them. I mean, we can certainly be engaged in what I call minimal mediation. And even though I'm very active on social media as part of my work, um, certainly my own life, uh, the level of mediation in terms of television viewing or films is very low. Um, There are no video games in my home, anything like that. So uh, I can't escape the culture, but I can certainly make a conscious effort to limit the level and degree of mediation. And and I do that because I understand that even though I'm conscious of how these messages are constructed and what their functions are, it doesn't mean I'm immune to them. Um, That we have to not only be vigilant and be able to deconstruct, but nothing can really, you know, kind of keep that cumulative effect happening if we're engaging with, you know, these high volumes. And so I I, I maintain that throughout my life now. It's not like it was something that was fixed and now I don't have to worry about it. Like I handle that problem. It's it's just an ongoing thing for the rest of my life, especially as the culture becomes more mediated and more invasive. Yeah. I'm interested in your perspective. So you're a professor of women's studies and sociology And I would love to hear where you see the conversation with young people today around body image. So what's kind of making your students concerned? What makes them excited? Well, interestingly enough, as much as things have changed, they haven't. And Mm -hmm. that's a really fascinating thing. Um, I was having a conversation with one of my best friends that I grew up with, and she just had published a book recently and, um, 
it was a personal story just about uh, an sort of inappropriate relationship with our junior high school teacher. And so that was, she's been sort of doing that work on the whole, you know, perpetrator victim thing. And then we started talking about body image, of course. And she reminded me that she had created a zine uh, way back in the 90s called Free Feeder and how, you know, she basically told her story, her body image story. And I remember in having that conversation the other day, I thought, wow, I mean, this is something she did almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had the book, The Beauty Myth, come out almost 30 years ago now. Mm. And and the issues are still the same. Um, there is still, you know, a misrepresentation of the full diversity of the female form and people in general. Um, the level of mediation has actually increased, meaning we're bombarded with more unattainable imagery than at any other point in human history. So in that way, we could even say it's worse. Um, and so students, to be honest, are still grappling with really some of the same issues, except now we're introducing things like social media and all of the filters and apps that allow them to, you know, sort of create a particular image that they want to convey, which may be very different than the reality of who they are. So I think it's actually become a more tenuous cultural environment than even what we experienced and grew up in, despite Mm -hmm. all of the wonderful body image work that's happening. Obviously, that's happening. And to be honest, Amy Giselle over um, at uh, Shaping Youth, we did an interview last year. I was doing a body image um, talk at a girls conference, and I was being joined by uh, Roy Q, who was a professional Photoshopper who was doing you know, uh, sort of a demonstration to show how even within 15 minutes, you can make these drastic changes. Mm. And she was asking me, she's like, is there really a need still for this conversation? I mean, isn't everybody aware that Photoshop is used? Most people understand these images are not real. It's like, yeah, that those conversations are certainly happening more than in the past, but we're also dealing with a more prolific stream of images than ever before and images that are more manipulated than, than ever before. And that it's not about our level of consciousness. It's actually the, the reams and reams of repetitive images that are making their way through our subconscious. And so that has remained the same in the conversation needs to continue. Um, so in that way, again, I feel like it's the same, but yet different. And I don't know right. if that really answers your question, but yeah. One, I like yeah. what you brought in about how we have a choice now and how we share our own image. And it's not that we didn't before, but there's just even more tools available to really change it a lot. And I think for everyday people, so not people who didn't have access yeah. to Photoshop, like you can just do that on your phone with an app. You don't have to have anything fancy to make it happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I talk about, you know, standards of beauty and, you know, body image, because it's the standards of beauty and how they intersect with the socio-political and historical context that we're situated in that informs our body image, right? Right. And, you know, I say beauty is not something that's new. (laughs) Standards of beauty have always existed. Um, The difference is a few things that I just want to really quickly outline. One difference is that historically, how closely you approximated the beauty ideal was not your primary measure of worth, especially as a woman. That, you know, your self-esteem and your social value was determined in a much more multifaceted way. Whereas today, how closely you approximate the beauty ideal is really the number one measure of self-esteem and social value for girls and women. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's one difference. The other thing that's different is that we are flooded with more imagery than ever before. I mean, especially in the last 15 years. And that 
keeps increasing, that we are dealing with a sort of, you know, a cultural terrain in which we really cannot escape these images. I mean, even 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even back, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have the same magnitude of images coming our way. So that's another thing. So now you have more images basically telling you that your self-worth and self-esteem is predicated on how closely you approximate the ideal. The other thing is that the standards of beauty were more attainable, to be quite honest, Mm. um, that we didn't have, you know, digital manipulation, whereas most of the, no, I could say all of the print images that we are exposed to have been digitally altered. Most of them have been worked on for eight to 10 hours a piece, meaning that every single pixel in an image has been altered. Mm -hmm. That was something that was not even available 20, 25 years ago. There was a lot done with lighting, obviously, Uh, then airbrushing came onto the scene and certainly having makeup artists and hairstylists, you know, um, that came in the mix. But now on top of all of that, we have we have the digital alteration. So it's not that beauty is the problem. It's just the particular cultural mechanisms that we're dealing with now that are very different than anything, anything that we've had in human history. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how you can just kind of. Like, there's nothing that's unchangeable now with that technology. What do you mean unchangeable? Well, with the pixels, like you said, we can get to every single thing, which is different than what we could get with lighting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And then, of course, like you said, I mean, that technology is now available to the average person. So it's not like we can even just look to going like, oh, well, we know these images have been altered because that's what they do. These are the, quote, everyday images that we're seeing in our feeds as well. Um, I mean, I know even for myself that when I sometimes look at images that don't have filters, they look ugly to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking just about pictures about myself, right? right. I'm talking about pictures that I see, uh, you know, that I take of landscapes or whatever. I'm like, oh God, if I could just add a filter, it'd be such a better picture. Right. About the degree to which everything that we're seeing is not an accurate reflection of reality and how, you know, sociologists would call it a hyper-reality that now what is unreal is more real to us than than, than what is real. So it's like we, we enter this very strange state and that has an impact psychologically, emotionally, physiologically. It impacts our relationships with ourselves, with others, etc. Yeah. Hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about something that can kind of help us with this a bit, which is yoga, like you and I have been talking about yes. um, over the years. And so I really want to encourage people to read your chapter in the book because it is so good <laughs> and I don't want to spoil Thank it for you. anyone. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how yoga is supporting you now. So what are you finding kind of the longer you practice and as your body changes over time, which of course is true for all of us? Yeah. You know, when I first started practicing, it was the first time that there was room to, um, kind of give my body its own space to let it be, to, you know, develop acceptance and gratitude and forgiveness. And to also understand that, you know, our bodies are not only changing over time in terms of this is now 20 years later, but they change moment to moment and day to day. And so, you know, that was really revolutionary. Um, and, and made, it was more about how I felt than how I looked, which was 
amazing and so, so new, which is why I say yoga is such a subversive practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, to be honest, ever since my son was born, while there have been years in the last five uh, since he's been born where I've, I've gone to group classes and had a physical practice, I'll definitely say for sure in the last year and a half, um, and for the bulk of the time that he's been born, my practice has gotten less and less physical uh, for, and also not as long as it used to be, mm-hmm. that it's become much more about the really internal work that I can now do the internal work without even needing a postural practice to guide the internal work, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And so um, sometimes, you know, I'm not doing physical postures and getting into the great feeling that you have when you do them. A lot of it now is just realizing that even if I don't feel good or even, you know, um, if I'm having a bad day, that that will change and it doesn't matter and it doesn't define who I am. A lot of the work that happened earlier was that I always felt so good, especially after a physical practice, that the feeling overrode anything in terms of an aesthetic maybe that would have potentially been problematic before mm-hmm. where now it's like, I don't even have to feel good to not let myself have a bad body image day, if you will, because mm-hmm. I see it as temporary and I don't see it as the biggest measure of my own self-worth and it doesn't determine, you know, the quality of my life. It does not determine um, how I interact with people. So, um, it supports me in that and in, in creating those mental and internal shifts within myself. And it's yeah. been pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You sounds like you developed those skills on the mat that now support you off. Yes. Yes. And, and that is not to say that I don't, you know, uh, crave the mat or need it. Um, certainly sure. I do um, a lot, a lot of why in the last four months, things have shifted and it's, and it's been less physical is also because I've been promoting this book right? <laughs> and I've been really busy and, um, you know, that has kind of escaped me, but I have maintained my, my nightly meditation practice and my seated practice that has been consistent basically every night since, um, two years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is wonderful, but I certainly, I can definitely say that my plan next week is when Brian Kest, one of my teachers and our contributors, rolls out his holiday sanity challenge, I, I'm partaking, and my goal is to get back into the physical practice as well because both of them are important, but mm-hmm. it's no longer the most important aspect of my practice. Right. So I, I definitely want to add that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's part of the benefit of practice, at least for me, is being able to roll with how it changes and not feeling like that's a problem, but rather like, how cool that it can, you know, shift and change and whatever is needed at whatever time. And it's all okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I definitely love my practice more now than I did when I was younger. And I loved my practice when I was younger. It's like, (laughs) everybody needed to go on the mat. I was like the biggest recruiter on the planet. You know how that is, right? Um, But what I love it now is there's something really beautiful. It's like, you know, aging with a partner. And so it's like I've aged with myself in this wonderful way from a place of forgiveness and acceptance. I have, you know, my practice has aged. We've aged together. I've aged with my community and my teacher. And there's something really profound and wonderful about that, Mm -hmm. that, of course, you know, I couldn't have had that when I was younger. And so I, I enjoy that. And I enjoy more of the subtlety of the practice um, because my awareness has become more fine-tuned. And that 
you know, really sharp awareness serves me in, in every aspect of my life. Um, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade that for, yeah, for anything. Yeah. What is your perspective on how the conversation around yoga and body image has shifted and evolved since you and I first started talking about it several years ago? Well, obviously there's more people talking about it. Yeah. There was really, um, nobody talking about it at that time, mm-hmm. um, which is why we found each other. And obviously, for example, Beth Barilla, who is in the coalition, I met her through that. Um, Carrie Cower, who is in the book and the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, met her <laughs> through that article. Um, so I think that there is an, sort of an aggregated mass happening now. There's more people who want to have that conversation. And I think there's more people who feel brave about having that conversation. Um, I think that as more people do it, and I I heard you talk about that in your recent interview with Diane Bondi in the Trailblazer series, I was listening to have a similar conversation with her. And you were saying that, you know, that when there is more people talking, it only inspires more. So I think it's the sheer volume of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And as, as you had said that where before it was really rare to have this conversation, you had pointed out now it's kind of odd if you're not having that conversation. Right. So it's amazing. I think, yeah, I think that's the big change. The other, um, the, the other change is that simultaneously is not only looking at the transformative element, but the movement, uh, which obviously that's the work we're also doing in the coalition is to, to challenge the one dimensional imagery that exists in the business and industry of yoga. Um, and so there's a lot more activism infused into the conversation as opposed to just being a theoretical or personal conversation. There's much more of an active component happening now in the last, I'd say, year and a half than previously. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Yoga and Body Image Coalition and how people can get involved. Yeah. So um, obviously when we were writing the book, we wanted, you know, you and I were very clear. We wanted to focus the book on the really wonderful transformative element of the practice. And as we were having our conversation, we're like, well, we can't really truly have an honest conversation about that without acknowledging that there's some really um, dysfunctional and potentially toxic imagery and expectations that flood yoga culture, right? The mm. idea of who is a yogi, what is what does a yoga practice look like, and what is the yoga body? And so, um, you know, we, of course, we, we infuse some of those elements, those critical elements in there. You know, Sean Korn talks a bit about that. Um, I briefly mention it. Rolf Gates mentions it. And so the Yoga and Body Image Coalition was really just an opportunity to take that component of the conversation and put it into action. And so that's what we've done. We are rolling out our our interview series. We have a huge campaign rolling out um, shortly um, that's kind of a diversity in yoga PSA, if you will, um, and kind of taking this opportunity to be the media, that it's not just about you know challenging and consulting those who create the imagery, but creating our own imagery as an example of what we'd like to see. Um, that really tells the truth about who we are as yogis and what a yoga practice can look like. So there's diversity all across the board. So we're doing that. We're planning um, tour dates um, next year, and we're doing some behind-the-scenes negotiations with um, larger entities right now to bring the body-positive message uh, in in a much more mainstream way, which I know is really controversial because you know there are some people who feel that doing that is selling out the message. But as a sociologist, I understand 
the only way that you can really create massive change is if you also get those massive entities involved and holding them accountable for the messaging that they're creating, which means not just co-opting the message, but actually doing the work. And so that's what we're committed to. Right. I feel like all change requires a multifaceted approach, and that's exactly what you're just saying. So working Mm -hmm. with people who already are the media and creating images, but Mm -hmm. also creating our own. Exactly. And so the campaign that we're rolling out, which will, um, there'll be information on it on our site, which is ybicoalition.com. There's a link to the coalition at obviously our yoga and body image.com website for the book. Yoga Dork will be uh, cross posting the information about the campaign. Mantra Magazine will be debuting those images in their December, January issue. Yoga Journal is doing an editorial feature um, on the campaign and the images that we created in their January issue. And then Yoga International is also interested in picking up the story. So, I mean, that's a pretty huge accomplishment, right? Yeah, it's like it is. Creating this model and then having it um, distributed on a, on a massive scale. And we're looking to do more of that next year. So, you know, we're all about, you know, highlighting the work that people are doing in their own communities. We're very much about collaboration and conscious community. It's not about a brand, as I say, it's about a movement. And that's what we're committed to. So if people want to become involved, they can um, email us at ybicoalition at gmail. They can go to our website, our Facebook, and our Twitter and find us. Find us, obviously, through the book because the book and the coalition are, are sisters. They're, they, they're like twins. Right. <laughs> they came from the same parents, right? And they, right. they might be doing different work. Right. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely uh, encourage people to get involved because we're looking to, to grow this and we want people on the ground to get involved and highlight what they're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. You know, I adore you. I appreciate all of your work. Same here. (laughs) And thanks to those of you listening. If you haven't already, definitely check out those websites and we'll link it all up for you below. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.